Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We spent a lot of time talking about the genius of artists, the ones that captured the zeitgeist of their time, the ones that pushed music forward in ways we're still celebrating. But in this series of episodes, we're looking at the labels that changed music, that championed those artists and gave them a platform to change the world. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what is the greatest record label? Part three. That's the age-old question. This is exciting. First of all, we haven't, we've never done three parts of a series. No, this is building. We're building this to a crescendo. In the first two episodes, we talked about Motown. Sub Pop. Atlantic. And Sun Records. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show. Four very different labels, but each of them had a massive influence on the course of popular music. What are we starting with in part three? Well, we're going to take it back. Okay. And we're going to talk jazz. We're going to talk about the birth of Blue Note Records and how Blue Note literally brought jazz to the world. Some of those other record labels, they weren't as geared specifically towards a genre necessarily. Sub Pop did more than grunge, and Motown, yeah, was a sound, but there was soul, there was, you know, there's a little rhythm and blues. This is like, no one's not jazz. They're signing jazz artists, and that's just, the, that's how it is. So it's 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 very interesting story, and I don't know how much you know about this, I know very little. Blue Note Records starts in 1937. Alfred Lyon, he was like a jazz aficionado. He was from Germany, Hmm. came to New York City. Blue Note is basically Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolfe, which is interesting. You got a lion lion and and a wolf. So Lyon was a jazz aficionado, and he's a very outspoken guy. He was a real producer type. He could bond with people. Wolf, on the other hand, is a professional photographer, more of like a 
a soft-spoken guy, you know, wasn't loud and boisterous, but together they made a great team and they were able to take this art form, package it in such a way they had a, an image, they had a graphic design strategy. When it started, it was 1937, Lion went and saw this show and he's so inspired by it that he goes up to two of the guys in the show and he says, I have to record this. And they're like, uh, okay. So he books a studio, records it. What's interesting is he brings a bottle of whiskey to that first session and lubes them up and like gets them, sets the mood for them. They record it. They love it. He loves it. So basically that was with this guy, Max Margolis. He was a communist actually, but he was one of the guys that helped fund these initial recordings. Now he penned the blue note mission statement as it were. And I quote, here it is. Blue Note records are designed to serve the uncompromising expressions of hot jazz or swing. Direct and honest hot jazz is a way of feeling, a musical and social manifestation. And Blue Note records are concerned with identifying its impulse, not its sensational and commercial adornments. So consciously focused on the art and not on the commercial aspect. 100%. And that was what made Blue Note. They only cared about finding artists that cared deeply about their art and didn't care about making hits or being famous. So around the World War II, they're making records. Lion actually gets enlisted, has to go off to war, comes back. But another crazy thing is they used to make records with shellac and there was a huge shellac shortage. A shellac shortage. A shellac shortage during World War II. So they couldn't put out records. They had very limited quantities, so they had to be very picky about what they released. It was a shortage of shellac. Shellac shortage. So after the war, 1946, they had 49 sessions under their belt, and there was mostly hot jazz, which is a type of jazz. A lot of boogie-woogie. But around this time, it started to change, and bebop became the thing. We're going to talk first about Thelonious Monk. He was one of the first breakthrough jazz artists on Blue Note. I've always loved that name, Thelonious. Yeah, incredible. And Thelonious Monk, he's a, he, he's a very interesting cat. He He's a piano player, and his style was very rhythmic and spacious. Frankly, odd. Like, the tunes are pretty out there. Angular. Angular, and a lot of trio stuff, upright drums and piano, but then horns too. The first thing I want to listen to is In Walked Bud. That's the name of the song, and it's off Monk's 1952's Genius of Modern Music, Volume 2. So let's take a listen to that. Alfred Lyon loved Monk. It just it hit him straight in the heart. So he was a big fan. So he put a lot of 
energy into this. So Thelonious Monk was the first real artist that crossed over. So next, we're going to go to Bud Powell. He was mentally ill. He was like this crazy dude. There's a great story of Alfred Lyon goes to a club to see him because he's, you know, he's... Alfred Lyon made relationships with these guys, and that's what I think ultimately ultimately made the label so successful, is that he befriended all these great jazz artists, and a lot of them were strung out and kind of odd people. And so Bud Powell's one of them. So we go to this club. Bud Powell, they're waiting around. Nobody's coming. You know, no artists showing up. Nobody's The crowd's there. Nobody's there. This guy in a trench coat walks in, and Alfred Lyon's sitting at the bar, and he looks up. And this guy walks over to the piano and he starts playing the piano but not touching any of the keys. But like mimicking like he's playing and kind of going like, you know, going crazy. No sound. Does it for a couple minutes, stands up, walks out. Bouncer got involved. So the guy's now out on the street. Alfred Lyon walks out on the street, can't find him. So he's walking, he's looking for him because he's worried about him. And this homeless dude is sitting in this doorway and he points under the car. And Bud Powell is, like, huddled under the car, like, scared to death. So Alfred Lyon picks him up, puts him in a cab, gets him home. But, like, hard to get to a session. How do you wrangle somebody like that? So a Mad genius. Mad genius. And Lyon was the perfect guy to do it. So gets, gets him in a room. He does many, many records on Blue Note. One that I want to listen to is Un Poco Loco, 1952's The Amazing Bud Powell. So let's have a listen to that. Mad genius. Mad genius. So Powell's another piano player. And all these guys are influenced by each other, right? Like Monk, Powell. uh, The next guy is Horace Silver, also a pianist. He's the guy who gives Blue Note their first like real hit. He crosses over more into the mainstream than any jazz artist had up until this point. He had Art Blakey on drums. Art Blakey's a name that you know. Yes. Art Blakey is like, he was with the Jazz Messengers. He was with Blue Note for like 15 years and really one of the like rocks of the label. Hmm. He was on so many sessions. Horace Silver, the one that I want to listen to is from 1956. It's from his release, Horace Silver and the Jazz Messengers, and this is called The Preacher. So they're all mad geniuses. They're all like... I mean, jazz is its own thing, right? Like, what do you, what do you think of jazz? What is jazz to you? I realize, you know, I don't listen to jazz very much. The jazz that I like is more melodic jazz. Some of the angular, frenetic jazz yeah. stresses me out. It stresses me out, too. In the way that, like, super noty bluegrass stresses me out. Yeah. Not dissimilar, necessarily. Yeah. Because it's a lot of improvisation and exploring in 1957 
Blue Note did 47 sessions. Things were cranking. One of those was John Coltrane's Blue Train. It's considered one of the most influential jazz albums of all time. It was actually the only record that he ever did for Blue Note under that name, John Coltrane. What we're going to listen to is the title track. It's called Blue Train, and this is from 1957's Blue Train. player he would practice all the time non-stop non-stop one of those guys that just hammered it legend and influenced so many people after him lion and wolf had built this label that was productive modern and meticulous in every aspect of its presentation from the sleeve notes to the quality of the vinyl from the graphic design of the colors to the Blue Note sound, which we're gonna get into now, the Blue Note sound. The Blue Note sound, it's all pioneered by this one dude, Rudy Van Gelder. He was an audio engineer who recorded almost every Blue Note record from 1953 to 1967. Hmm. He had an insistence of no food and no drink in the studio. On no account was anyone to touch a microphone. He would only move microphones and gear with gloves on his hand. I mean, the guy was meticulous. And the sounds that he got are what define these Blue Note records. It's this presence where you feel like you're literally in the room with mm. them. So mm. he captured the sound of the instruments but also captured the room. Part of this whole thing is getting musicians in a room, playing a song. Getting the live take. Getting the take. Yeah. So, you know, multiple takes would be done of the same song and they'd pick the best one. So Rudy Van Gelder was able to set up the microphones in such a way that he created his own thing. Hmm. And in fact, there's videos where he would actually move the microphones so that people couldn't see in the video how he was miking stuff. So he was very conscious. It was like his own little thing. And he had his own place in New Jersey where they all went out and recorded. What it comes down to is the liveness of his recordings is what gave them the sound. Hmm. Many of these sessions were at like 4 a.m. They started at 4 a.m., right? Because you get these jazz guys, they do shows seven nights a week. So they'd have a show until 2, 3 in the morning. Then they'd hop on the train, head out to New Jersey, you know, and, and they're partying. Like, they, they're messed up at times. In fact, Miles Davis, who is considered, you know, one of the finest trumpet players slash jazz innovators, innovators in the world of all time, uh, he only did three records for Blue Note. But when they started, it was like right in its, the peak of his heroin use. 
So he's real inconsistent, real hard to to nail down. But Alfred Lyon offered him sessions where no one else would because he was all messed up. Hmm. He did three records with Blue Note. Let's listen to one of those. The album's called Miles Davis Volume 3. Song's called Take Off. Mad genius. Mad genius. Heroin use? Yeah. I mean, it existed in... In rock and roll, obviously, but but there's something about heroin and jazz, especially in this in this era. You mentioned the records he made for Blue Note was at the peak of his heroin use. Coltrane, it's worth acknowledging that there was some tragic connection between heroin and yeah. jazz yeah. in that era. And it's interesting to think about bebop on heroin, <laughs> which is like this frenetic, fast-paced music. Right. Wow, the dude takes a solo and then he nods off mid-song while the other guy takes a solo. Like, so messed up. Right. But playing this super technical music. My favorite of all of these guys... My favorite Blue Note recording artist is Grant Green. And Grant Green is a guitar player. And he... I've never heard of Grant Green. Epitomizes the jazz guitar for me. One of my songs that I love of his is called California Green. It's on a 1971 album called Shades of Green. And my band, uh, The Necessary Means, used to cover this song. But it's just a... It's a simple song, but his guitar tone is perfect. And his phrasing is perfect, and I just—he's I, I, one of my favorites. So let's listen. Let's listen. So, Blue Note goes on. And then it gets sold, Lion leaves, Frank dies, and it gets sold, and it goes from record label to record label, and it, it fades, and then it comes back, and then it fades. And then it wasn't until Nora Jones got signed, and that was a major deal for Blue Note, because Nora Jones isn't really jazz necessarily. I mean, she's, got, she's jazz-ish. Jazz-ish. She's got the upright bass, and, but it, it, it's pop music. They actually didn't want to release it on Blue Note. They wanted to release it on like a subsidiary label, but she was adamant because she just loved, she grew up listening to Blue Note records and wanted to be on Blue Note. So they did it. Ended up winning eight Grammys and selling eight million copies or whatever. Putting Blue Note back in the conversation. Right. Come away with me in the Come away with me and I will write you song. Blue Note's back. They Don was currently is taken over as chief creative officer. There's like hip hop records that have been released using old Blue Note sample samples, which is pretty sweet. That is cool. After our part two 
we got a voicemail message from Brian. My bandmate, Brian Chartrand. You guys have to talk about Blue Note. Yeah. So let's hear what he has to say. Lads, I hope at some point you talk about Blue Note records, not only for what they did for jazz music, but there was a whole revival in the early 2000s when they signed Nora Jones and Amos Lee. Sweet pea, I love my eye. Don't know where and I don't know why. You're the only reason I keep on coming home. Talk about a, a label that brought jazz to the masses and kept that music alive. And I hope you touch on that. And I hope you touch on the, the, the rebirth of Blue Note. Love the podcast. A little shout out from Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, bye. I want to talk about the look of the albums. Yeah. Like the album artwork. Mm-hmm. Because really, maybe more than any label, such a look. They're very simple. There's not much going on. It's all this black and white photography of the artist and then a pop of color the graphic design is very distinct it's like they were consistent you saw it you knew you knew it was blue it was note. blue note. yeah and that's ultimately what these labels this whole conversation is about is the brand of each of these labels and how it poked its head through into the zeitgeist of all of us listening there was a vibe there was a brand there was a look What do you got? Well, for my nominee, I want to talk about a label called Island Records. Formed in 1959, when a young water ski instructor working at the Half Moon Hotel in Montego Bay, Jamaica, offered to help the hotel's pianist make a record. That water ski instructor was a kid named Chris Blackwell. His uncle owned the hotel, and the hotel had hired Lance Hayward to play piano in the lobby for the season. The album Lance Hayward at the Half Moon Hotel was the first album released by Island Records. Chris Blackwell relocated to England in 1962 and brought Island Records with him. He would go record store to record store, carrying albums of Jamaican artists he had signed. He soon expanded into the UK rock scene, signing the Spencer Davis Group, which featured a 15-year-old Steve Winwood. Their most enduring hit has to be this song, Gimme Some Lovin'. Written by the Winwood brothers and Spencer Davis, and it features the now 18 year old Steve Winwood on lead vocals. And that organ sound is the thing, right? (laughs) 
Well, and can you imagine sounding like that at 18 years old? Oh my god. I mean, that's that's like natural ability. Yeah, that's prodigy. It wasn't just reggae and rock that Blackwell was interested in. He signed the acoustic folk songwriter John Martin. signed the folk rock band Fairport Convention, which featured Richard Thompson. I love Richard Thompson, who left Fairport Convention in 1971 to start his own career that included some of my favorites of all time, like Dimming of the Day with his wife, Linda Thompson. Back to the catalog that Chris Blackwell was building at Island Records. How about this album, released by Island in 1970, T for the Tillerman by Cat Stevens. We talked about Cat Stevens in the last episode. Yeah. T for the Tillerman includes hits like Hard-Headed Woman. I'm looking for a hard-headed woman One who'll take me for myself Wild World. Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. It's hard to get by. And Father and Son. Oh, I love that song. It's not time to make a change. Just relax. Take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. There's so much you have to know. How about this one, Clint? Nick Drake who signed to Island when he was 20 years old and a student at Cambridge. One of the most beautifully intimate acoustic singer-songwriters. His third album from 1972 is called Pink Moon, and the title track is his most famous song. Because he started in Jamaica, and the name of the label was Island, it's not surprising that Blackwell continued to bring reggae music to a broader audience. Some of the reggae legends he signed include Toots and the Maytals. Jimmy Cliff. The harder they come. And then the harder they come, the harder they fall. One and Bob Dylan called Jimmy Cliff's song Vietnam the best protest song I ever heard. We did an episode on yeah. protest song. We didn't name we didn't that. We didn't mention that.
When Jimmy Cliff left Island Records in 1972, Chris Blackwell was devastated and he sought to fill that void. He took a meeting with Bob Marley and the Whalers in his London offices. A ton of people were telling him to avoid doing business with these guys who were, quote unquote, bad news. Bob Marley, Bunny Livingston, and Peter Tosh were broke. Blackwell asked them how much they would need to make a record, and they said 4,000 pounds. He gave them the money up front right there. <laughs> Here is Chris Blackwell interviewed on Sirius XM talking about meeting Bob and taking a chance on him. Just out of the blue, somebody called me and said, um, Bob Marley and the Whalers are in England. And the Bob Marley and the Whalers at that time was Bob, Peter, and Bunny. They were stranded in England because they'd gone to Sweden to do a film. And uh, the film collapsed. And the person who had organized it for them hadn't given them tickets back to Jamaica. They just got tickets back from Sweden to London. So anyhow, I said, well, send him in. And uh, Bob and Peter and Bunny walked in. They told me how they were totally broke, stranded and everything. But they walked in, you know, with, again, an aura. You know, they were just, um, they were like kings. So I made a deal with Bob. I felt the only way to establish a relationship with them was to take a risk and uh, give them the money in advance because they'd had nothing but been ripped off by anybody they dealt with before. So there's nothing you could really say the only thing you could actually act. And so that's what uh, I did. And that was the smartest thing probably I've ever done. They went back to Jamaica and recorded the album Catch a Fire. It was the first time a reggae album had been recorded in a state-of-the-art studio. And it's that album that in many ways breaks the dam of international attention on reggae. Catch a Fire includes the all-time classic, Steer It Up. The next album came a year later. Burnin' featured Get Up, Stand Up. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. I Shot Get the Sheriff. Up. I Shot the Sheriff. This album also features one of my favorite Bob Marley songs, Rastaman Chant. I just love the vibe nice. of this song. By 1974, Bob Marley's genius was an unstoppable force. The album Natty Dread features Lively Up Yourself. No Woman, No Cry. And this song, Them Belly Full. Them belly full, but we hungry. A hungry mob is a hungry mob. Three years later, 1977, the album Exodus featured four songs that were international hits, including Jamming. Waiting in Vain. I don't 
One love, people get ready. One And three little birds. Jeez. Don't worry about a thing. Cause every little thing gonna be alright. And the song that our friend Nick Torn pointed out in the Mondegreen Misheard Lyric episode, Exodus. Moving bunch of people. <laughs> Exodus. Bob Marley would put out three more studio albums on Island Records before his death, and a fourth posthumously. But it's his greatest hits album, Legend. We talked about it in episode 21, what is the greatest, greatest hits album, that came out in 1984, that has become far and away the biggest selling reggae album of all time. As of July 2022, Legend has spent a total of 739 consecutive weeks on the Billboard chart. No way. The second longest run in history. Any guesses which album has been in the charts the longest? Dark Side of the Moon. ABBA's Greatest Hits. Ah. Here's the top five. You ready? Yeah. (laughs) Number one, ABBA's Greatest Hits. Two, Bob Marley Legend. Three, Queen's Greatest Hits. Hmm. Four, Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Nice. Five, Number Ones by Michael Jackson. Oh, not even the Beatles one. (laughs) Okay. But as great and as influential as Bob Marley is, Clint, there's another band that might be even bigger. We've talked about U2 a few times on this podcast, but one of the remarkable things about this band from Dublin is that nearly every record label passed on U2. But Chris Blackwell saw something within that band that he knew was transcendent. Here he is talking at Loyola University about signing them. Well, they're really an exception, I have to tell you. You know, with most, most um, things you look at, the deeper you get into them, the shakier they get. In the case of you two, the deeper you get into it, the stronger they are. They're absolutely incredible people. I've, I've had, um, I've worked with them from, and when I say worked with them, I did very little work. It's only recently that I realized that I contributed somewhat, and that contribution was by doing actually nothing. <clears throat> but, you know, I stayed out of the way and, and gave them a, a platform. But I believed in them when I met them. I believed in them as personalities. Even I, though you didn't like their music? I didn't take to the music, no. Not, not when I first heard them, because I, I like bass and drum. Right. You know, and they're, 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 it was rinky-dink, in my opinion, at that time. So <laughs> I didn't hear it, you know, what can I tell you? But I, I did see them. I believed in them. Their debut album, Boy, came out in 1980. And in the next few records, they had some hit singles. But Blackwell and Island Records continued to believe in the band's potential. And it was U2's fifth album, The Joshua Tree, that made them global superstars. With songs like With or Without You, Running to Stand Still. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They put out what I consider to be the best album of the 1990s, Octung Baby, released on Island Records. 
to wrap up our discussion on Island Records, Clint, let's turn it over to Bono from his speech inducting Chris Blackwell into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For some, music is an excuse to make money. For the best, money is an excuse to make music. First time I saw Chris Blackwell, I was 18 years old. Uh, You two were playing in a pub in South London. It was the height of punk rock. He was wearing flip-flops. This was not very punk rock. (laughs) To people tuning into VH1 who are still asking the question, who who is Chris Blackwell? Well, let me tell you, if you've heard Gimme Some Lovin' or Baby, Baby, It's a Wild World or The Harder They Come, well, you've met him. You heard We're the Streets of No Name or Love is the Drug. I know some of you are thinking, but he doesn't play, he doesn't sing, he doesn't write. He's just in the room when the magic happens. But when you're in the room 10, 20, 30 times and the magic has happened, you start to wonder, is it him? Is it you? Rock and roll would have stayed in the fields of Tennessee, in the pubs of Richmond, and the whorehouses of New Orleans, the ghettos of Jamaica, if it wasn't for Chris Blackwell, the magic man, the music man. There used to be a lot of them out there, like Chris Blackwell, like Ahmed Ertigan, like Barry Gordy. But you know what? 10 or 12 madmen like Chris Blackwell are the reason we're all here. And if we want to stay here, we better remember that. Bono's words are both a celebration of these wild visionaries that helped bring music to new heights. He mentions Ahmet Erdogan from Atlantic. He mentions Barry Gordy from Motown. We talked about these guys in part one and two. But his words are also an indictment or a warning against the corporatization of the record business. Would you two have been given five albums to break through if the record label wasn't run by a visionary. Hmm. No, is the answer to that. And that's the that's the genius of Chris Blackwell. He did it. And that's I think one of the things that's been lost in music mm-hmm. is the power of a visionary to say I believe in this artist. Development. Development. Yes. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. It's gone. You don't have a hit single in your first record, you're they're not going to spend the money on you anymore because there's somebody next to you that's going to do it. Island Records. Island Records. There's no rhyme or reason. Like, they signed Nick Drake, U2, and Bob Marley could be... They're three of the most different styles of music out there. Totally. And he made it all work. That is a difference between what we've seen for the other record labels we've been talking about. So two two more very different labels. Yes. And Island Records has sold way more than Blue Note Records. Right? Right? But I'm, I'd be interested to know, you and I are not casual music fans, but if I said to a casual music fan, have you heard of Blue Note Records? I don't know. I think people the, have heard of Blue Note. I, that's what I mean. Is yeah. I think Blue Note is maybe more, more famous yeah. because the label itself was the brand. Because it was so geared towards one genre. I think that's part of it. And Island Records, I think a casual music fan, even though you've heard a million of those records... Yes. You're maybe you wouldn't know right. that Octung Baby was on Island Records right. or that or Bob Marley or Bob Marley. Right. You just accept it for what it is. Yeah. So I think 
I think you're right. I think Blue Note is a more of a focused brand. Yeah. And Island is not a focused brand in any way, shape, or form. I mean, from Richard Thompson and John Martin and, and Nick Drake to Toots and Jimmy Cliff yeah. and Bob Marley to U2. U2 is... But yeah, U2 sold so many records. And so did Bob Marley. Like, they sold so many more records than John Coltrane. <laughs> and by the way, or, what, a, what a life for Chris Blackwell. Yeah. To start as a water ski instructor and to Jeez. say, you know what? I like your style, piano player. How about we make a record? Yeah. Well, I think we did it. I think we did it. I think, we've, I think we're doing it. And I think there's more to come. And we really appreciate the feedback and the encouragement as we make our way through the great labels. Yes. We hope you had fun, as much fun as we did. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Also, if you're digging the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the age old question and consider becoming a part of our age old question family. With your support, we'll be able to answer many more age old questions. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.